And please, uh, would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart bring you praise? Lord, thank you for gathering us here. Um, Lord, to uh, have the word uh, read, but also reside, reside within us. Holy Spirit, would you cause that uh, residence of the word in us? to um, bring glory to your name, to bear much fruit. Uh, Lord, to change us, um, to flow from this place so that uh, the good news of the gospel would be the joy of Santa Fe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing Mark this morning, and and we're in the thick, really, of a courtroom drama. Jesus has already gone through something like a preliminary trial held by these religious authorities, and he's essentially been indicted, and now the process is moving forward. And, and it's clear that those carrying this forward are, are less concerned with the legality of the procedure uh, than they are with the lethality of the outcome. Uh, if, you've, if you've tracked with the gospel, we've known this for some time. Very early on, back in chapter 3, Jesus had the temerity to heal a man on the Sabbath, um, and it was then, beginning then, way back, uh, that uh, these religious leaders held counsel on how they might destroy him. Uh, and they continue to hold counsel uh, in, in this deadly plot. But what's shocking uh, is, is that the Pharisees and the Herodians have come together. Uh, they've been holding counsel together. Uh, the, the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities, and, you know, that might not sound like much to you and me, but, you know, imagine I told you that, you know, I, I just got out of a meeting with uh, Planned Parenthood and the NRA. Or, or, you know, you open the business page of the paper and you find out that Fox News and MSNBC are having a merger. I mean, that gives you a little bit of a flavor of, of the insanity of this. You know, the Russians have a saying, uh, the enemy of the enemy the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, in other words, you know, there's enemies and then there's enemies. Strange alliances take shape when the overriding desire is to see that Jesus is done for. He's regarded as kind of the ultimate enemy. And, and, and it's working. Our passage begins with Jesus being bound and delivered uh, delivered over, now, 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 delivered over to the Romans. Now, to be sure, there's some, there's some cruel theater in this. Um, Jesus isn't presented to Rome as a, you know, a bothersome, you know, rabbi, kind of a, you know, radical college professor type, you know, or, you know, somebody with some quirky religious views. Uh, he is presented to them as a violent revolutionary. He needs to be tied up. Now, now, part of the genius of the Roman imperial system was their unwillingness to get tangled up in local politics. They, they, they would li- they, like to leave the everyday workings of government and administration and parts of the justice system, like powers to arrest and gather evidence and hold preliminary hearings and, you know, even, even some authority to dole out some punishments. They, they, they'd like to leave that to the locals. And they definitely did not want to get into, you know, sorting out whatever religious differences, this strange religion of Judaism, you know, whatever they may be dealing with amongst themselves. 
This was, you know, they, they like to put that firmly in the category of you do you. But if cases were serious enough, certainly ones that might warrant the death penalty, they'd be brought before a Roman governor for trial. So it was common for Roman governors to rule on cases which had been kind of partially adjudicated so that they'd you know, consider the evidence and, and the witnesses for a final ruling. And, and that's where we are. Now, I want to be careful here because, you know, there's, there's huge differences. That, you know, that everything I just described might sound kind of orderly, you know, not unlike our system, uh, but there's huge differences between the American justice system and the Roman one. You know, for starters, the Romans didn't have a 14th Amendment. They had no problem depriving a non-Roman citizen of life, liberty, or property without due process or under equal protection of the law. Which meant for people like Jesus, non-Roman citizens, there weren't criminal codes and guidelines. Your case was decided by fiat, by provincial governors like Pontius Pilate. It was part of their job. They were completely free to make up the rules as they went along and impose whatever punishments or judgments they saw fit. And, and, you know, you might imagine that was a huge beef for occupied peoples in the empire. In fact, Josephus, the historian at the time, recorded that Pontius Pilate was notorious for, for kind of being arbitrary and cruel in his rulings. So, you know, there's some serious trepidation in Jesus being brought before a guy like that. But, but to be clear, it's not like Jesus has been treated fairly thus far. In fact, in point of fact, according to Jewish law, he shouldn't even be here. That's not to say that the hearings before the religious council didn't have witnesses. They did, uh, but none of them could agree. And, you know, according to God's law, that should have ended it right there. Not only that, but, you know, the high priest uh, who's overseeing these uh, these deliberations. He's supposed to be kind of the guy who stays silent, he's impartial, he sits back, but he continually inserted himself in these deliberations, demanding that Jesus answer the question of whether or not he is the Messiah. Well, then again, there again, there's nothing in the law uh, that prohibits anyone from saying they're the Messiah. And indeed, Jesus affirms that he's God's Messiah. But that's not what puts him before Rome, because we're still in that sort of you-do-you, religious back and forth, which the Romans could care less about. But drawing from Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, Jesus says not only that he's the Messiah, he says something else, I'm the sovereign Lord, and I'm the king. And it is that answer that provides the court with what it needs to move this forward, not on religious grounds, but on Roman grounds. And as soon as Jesus is before Pilate, it becomes clear why that particular charge is pressed so firmly and so fiercely by the religious leaders. Because Jesus' answer that he's king isn't just a theological assertion among religious people. It is taken as a threatening assertion among Roman people. Um, he's presented to them. The religious authorities reformulate their original charges in terms that a, a Roman prefect can understand, and it's clear 
you know, that they've mentioned nothing to him about being, you know, his claim to be Messiah, but they presented him uh, before Pilate that he is saying, this, he's saying he's a king. And here's the thing about kings. They don't like rivals. Uh, Caesar is no exception. So if Jesus is coming up in here claiming to be king, there's no discussion, there's no due process, there's no do-overs, do uh, you are guilty of treason and off to your death. Now, we know that the religious authorities and Roman officials, Mark tells us that they conferred before they got this hearing going, and we, we don't know exactly what was said in that little conference, but Pilate's first question tells us kind of everything. He's very direct with Jesus, uh, he, he's, and, he, and he's also not dumb. Uh, it's clear that he's, he's got a little bit of caution about getting played here, and he's, and he's not a little bit suspicious of the religious authorities who brought Jesus here. In fact, Mark tells us that he's suspicious that Jesus is being handed over out of envy. In other words, they're, they're using this process to rid themselves of a rival. So Pilate asks the question, very straightforward, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, and his answer is interesting. He says, you have said so. Now, now that's an answer that the exact meaning of it uh, can really only be determined by the inflection of the words coming out of Jesus' mouth. And, and there's no way we can know that, but we can understand uh, that answer by paying attention to Pilate's response. And Pilate says to him, have you no answer? In other words, Pilate treats Jesus' answer as a non-answer. Something, you know, like Jesus has said something like, if you say so, whatever you say, Pilate. It's likely Pilate was hoping Jesus would quickly deny the accusation so he could dismiss the case and, you know, get back to doing, you know, to having someone feed him grapes while they play a harp or whatever it is that Roman prefects do. But, but he, having got the non-answer, he's compelled to press further, and he reminds Jesus of the seriousness of the charges, probably hoping he'll give the easy answer that'll just get him out of here. But Jesus gives no more answers. The charge is literally deadly serious, and Jesus will not deny it. Now, at this point, it becomes clear that all this is taking place in public. This wasn't uncommon in Roman trials. These things, in fact, got pretty rowdy. Uh, they, they, they were not unlike sporting events where you would have people in the crowd kind of pulling for or against the accused in the process. But not only was there, you know, a place for the, the crowd in this process in which the Roman, but, but, but there was also, you know, at Passover, kind of a special part for them as well. The Romans had this tradition. It's called the custom of the feast. And this is where the Roman governor would release a prisoner to them on the Passover. You know, apparently at some point, one of these Roman prefects got this idea that, you know, if we, you know, things get intense around the Passover, there's all these people who've come from all over the diaspora, and, you know, and they're, and, and they're, they're upset that, that this isn't their city, it's the Romans are here. So, you know, let's throw the hoi polloi a bone. We'll, we'll release a prisoner, whoever you ask for. So, when the crowd asks Pilate to do as he usually did for them, you know, they're, they're asking him to release a prisoner. It's time for the custom of the feast. 
and, and not having gotten, you know, here he's got Jesus right in front of him and not having gotten what he wanted out of Jesus, Pilate thinks, you know, well, here's the perfect opportunity to get out of this mess. So, you know, he's, he's like, I've got a guy right here. Let's do this. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He probably figured that while the elite religious class had hauled Jesus in out of envy, you know, maybe Jesus is regarded as a man of the people, a local hero, and, and, and they'd want him to get let go. But we find out that the religious leaders stirred up the crowd, and shockingly, they asked for someone else to be released. We know only a few things about the person they asked for. We know what he was called. We know his crime. And, and, and we know the context in which he committed that crime. He's called Barabbas, and the crime that landed him in the slammer was murder. And the context in which that murder was committed was an insurrection against the Roman Empire. He probably killed a Roman soldier. This part of the empire was famous for these kind of periodic violent rebellions. Of course, the reality of occupation touched everybody's life, and so there was support and sympathy for like these national zealot type guys who were willing to take a stand for Israel, even if it meant killing somebody. And all of that figures into why they'd call for his release. But Pilate isn't content to let Barabbas go without getting the crowd to weigh in on Jesus' case. So he calls upon them, asking, kind of, you know, almost pleading, what should I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And it's a bit of a weird move, obviously, in some ways, because, you know, setting Barabbas free really doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. The tradition isn't to free one guy and condemn another guy. It's just to free the one guy, and that's it. Yet, as fiercely as they demand freedom for the murderer, they demand death for the one claiming to be Messiah. Now, if you haven't been tracking with the Bible, you know, we all know where this is headed, even if you haven't been tracking with the Bible. You know, we know Jesus' death is imminent. He said so himself, that he'll be arrested and tried before the religious rulers, handed over to the Gentiles, killed. <clears throat> but if you can, you know, just for a second, you know, just try to suspend that for a minute and put yourself in the moment. Because, you know, yeah, even as Jesus has told us he'll be killed, he's never spoken of the way in which he'll be killed. And this is the first time in the gospel the way he will be killed is put into focus. It's the first time crucifixion is mentioned. Now, again, we have to kind of step out of our little context and try to put ourselves there because, you know, we hear crucifixion and we think of crosses, and that might not sound like no big deal because for, t for us today, on a popular level at least, we've got crosses all over the place. They're on our buildings, they're on our bumpers, they're around our necks, they're amongst our knickknacks. You know, we've gotten kind of cozy with the cross. And, and, and that would seem insane to the people of Jesus' day. The mere mention of the cross, you know, to the first readers of this gospel would cause them to gasp. Because the cross, to be crucified, to die on the cross really meant something. It, it meant horror and shame and degradation and not just death, but something kind of worse than death. 
to, to even begin to get kind of in the neighborhood of what a cross symbolized at the time of Jesus. You know, we might hang guillotines around our necks or electric chairs or hypodermic needles. But here's the, you know, maybe the biggest difference. We, we see the cross as a symbol of religion. But, it, but in Jesus' day, the cross represented the ultimate in repression. It represented the, the cruelty and the capriciousness and the callousness of the one who ruled over you, and it reminded you who had complete power over your life and could crush you with maximum humiliation and shame anytime they pleased. The cross meant a totalizing, brutalizing power over life and death itself. You'd never adorn your body with it. You wouldn't mention it in polite company. You wouldn't joke about it because it was such a repulsive reality. Most people at this time would have witnessed a crucifixion for themselves. Uh, when Jesus was a boy, it's almost certain he saw crucified people. There was a major rebellion in Galilee around that time in which the Romans quelled with mass executions by crucifixion. And in some 35 years on from this time of this trial, um, there'll be another massive uprising in this part of the world in which the Romans not only destroy the temple, but historical records show they crucified literally thousands of people. The, the historical record says, in fact, there were so many crucifixions, it's almost like the Romans got a little bored with it and began experimenting with hanging people from the crosses in all kinds of different positions and poses. So, when the crowd starts chanting, crucify him. You know, it's, it's not just merely unjust, it's kind of unthinkable. It's obscene that they would ask for that for one of their own. As he stands before them, already having been scourged. And yet, they knew exactly what they were asking for. And it prompts Pilate to ask the crowd, why? What evil has he done? And yet, they don't merely ask for this for Jesus. They insist on it. They're given another opportunity. And again, they say, crucify him. And it makes you wonder, why are they so insistent? And you have puzzled over this this week. And I think to get in an answer, it's critical to notice a term in reference to Jesus that pulses through this chapter like a drumbeat. Six times in 32 verses alone. And, and that drumbeat basically is Jesus is king. He is king. Now, we can imagine that he had been, that had he been put before Pilate as prophet or priest, things might have been different. You know, you can dismiss a prophet, you can defrock a priest, but, but what do you do with a king? That is a whole different ball of wax, isn't it? Because to claim kingship is not just to declare something of oneself. It is to demand something of others. Necessarily so. Royalty necessarily reorders things. Even in our day where monarchies are upheld for their kind of symbolic importance, they still hold great power over people and societies and events and rules and behavior. I mean, did you watch Queen Elizabeth's funeral procession this summer? 
You know, it was said of her that, that everywhere she went, she smelled fresh paint. Everything's reordered. And, and then the question is, what if? What if the one who claims kingship is indeed a true, real king? What if the earth is his and all that it contains? What if he created and upholds the cosmos by the word of his power? What if the power his scepter sways? Well, that has implications for everybody. It means for you and for me, we occupy one of two places in this world. We are either in right relationship with the king or we are in rebellion against the king. It is quite that stark. Jesus has actually described this situation as clearly as anyone can. He said, no one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to one and despise the other. So Jesus' unwillingness to say that he is anything less than king presents an immense challenge to everyone. And it immediately places him at odds, not only with all the ruling powers, but with all the religious powers. And, and you know, now, having said all that, you might sit back and go, no, wait a second. You don't realize how modern and sophisticated I am. You, you, you might think, look, as close as I've gotten to anything having to do with a king in my life is I just bought Prince Harry's book, and, you know, every now and then I'll watch Game of Thrones. I'm not subject to anyone or anything. Lived in America my whole life. I vote every two years, sometimes more often. I'm a free-thinking, free-choosing, American individualistic free agent, not subject to anyone or anything. Incidentally, this is what lies behind the argument that we don't need God because we're sufficient in ourselves. So the last thing we need, you know, imposed on us is some idea of an authority or a rule outside of myself. But that logic is to deny something fundamentally true of all of us, that, that we're created beings made in God's image, made for him, contingent upon his care, called to be in right relationship with him. There's a lot the Bible says about that. But, but just to illustrate it for you, let me, let me just share an important secular insight that I think illustrates the biblical truth. The famed Swiss psychiatrist and protege of Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, argued that everyone is driven by and ruled by what he called a hierarchy of values. That is to say, there is, there is, there is a supreme principle or value that is seated at your absolute center, and it will determine how you live and move and have your being in the world. No one is exempt from that. No one is untouched by that. So, you know, when you say, I want nothing to do with the idea of divine authority in my life, you have just revealed yourself. You have just demonstrated that you cannot help but succumb to what sits atop the hierarchy of your values. That, that you have a rule of heart and conscience which moves you and motivates you, even if that rule of heart and conscience is one that says, authority is construed in my conception of anti-authority. In other words, your heart and mine is a throne. It's a throne. It will be occupied, and we will be ruled. No one can say, I will not have a king rule over me. And no one can say they will not bend the knee. The question is never, has the knee been bent? The only question is, to whom or to what has it been bent? 
And that means something profound when you encounter Jesus. It means you must either crucify him or you must crown him. And it is that encounter that explains the cries, the insistence of crucify him. Because they are convinced that the great evil that he has committed, the one that has earned him a cruel death, is that he is the wrong kind of king representing the wrong kind of kingdom. He is my rival. He is regarded as a traitor, and to all of them he is, and everybody knows what's got to happen to traitors. And this explains, I think, why Jesus is not merely condemned, he's exchanged. They're not content merely to call for the crucifixion of Jesus, they call for the liberation of Barabbas in the same breath. Why? Because Barabbas is the kind of king we love. He's a truer representative. He's the kind of king and the kind of kingdom I desire. He's a more desirable savior. People like this need to be pardoned and freed and returned to the people. While this Jesus who says his kingdom is not of this world, who welcomes sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and Gentiles, who won't raise a fist, much less utter a word against Rome, he needs to be done away with in the Roman way of doing things. Rome won't tolerate rival kings. The people will not tolerate rival saviors, so they push their once-a-year prerogative one step further to not only have someone set free, but for good measure to have this pretender crucified. Can you, can you see this dynamic? How pulsing kind of underneath all the procedures and the posturing and the politics, underneath the maneuvering of the religious authorities and the chanting of the crowd and the determination to maintain the power of the empire is this common conviction. As, as fierce and gruesome and brutal as crucifixion itself, which is, you know, undying loyalty to a false king and a false kingdom. The enemy of the enemy is my friend. Pilate may not be foaming at the mouth and chanting for the death of Jesus, but all the same, even as the crowds lust after an overthrow of the order of things that seems at odds with the kingdom of God, Pilate seeks the preserving of the order of things that's at odds with the kingdom of God, and everyone's willing to allow immense injustice to be suffered by the one true and innocent king to protect their dream of their own kingdoms. Now, it's vital to see not only that Jesus stands before them as king, but how he stands before them. As we've seen, he stands before them silently. Pilate's questioned him intensely, uh, thinking he might get him to come to his senses and put this whole charade to an end, but he was silent. And Pilate's amazed by that. You know, this is, in, by the way, in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that the Messiah would stand silent as the servant who gives his life as a ransom for many, like a lamb being led to slaughter not uttering a word to defend or justify himself. And I don't know, I mean, every time I read this in the Bible, I don't know about you, but I, but I get, it's a frustrating. Like, just say something, do something. Don't you want him to do that? Before I was a pastor, I was the director of a graduate school admissions office. And our most basic requirement for anyone to be considered for admissions is they had to have a degree from an accredited four-year university. And, and I can remember a few really heartbreaking interactions with applicants who had, who had 
been to institutions, you know, spent money and time, but they were unaccredited. And, and I had to give them the heartbreaking news that as far as we were concerned in terms of their application, from our perspective, it's like they never went to school at all. But we had one exception to this rule. There, there, there was one unaccredited school uh, whose degree we would accept, Harvard University. Turns out that Harvard is unaccredited. Why are they unaccredited? Simply for this reason, they're Harvard. The idea that America's oldest and arguably greatest university, founded in 1636, would run around seeking validation from some accrediting agency, you know, they took to be something of an affront. It's something that would undermine their stature. Why? Because they're self-validating. They're Harvard. Jesus is silent because to subject himself to the approval of lesser kings or kingdoms would undermine who he is. He doesn't need the approval of religious councils. He doesn't need the good housekeeping seal of the Roman Empire or crowds to cheer him on to, you know, help him be assured in the knowledge that he's actually the king. He has the validation of the Father and the Spirit. He knows who he is and he knows where he's going. He stands before them silently because he is self-validating. He also stands before them innocently. Even as he's condemned and exchanged, Barabbas deserves to remain in chains, but Jesus is bound. Barabbas deserves to die so that Jesus is set free, but Jesus is condemned while Barabbas is freed with the crowd's congratulations. The guilty goes free and the innocent goes to his death. And it's more than that. Jesus goes there in the place of another who should have gone there. The first readers of this gospel undoubtedly would have had sympathies with a guy like Barabbas. They'd, they'd have seen him more as revolutionary than rebel. They might have even thought that, you know, if only we had a few more Barabbases in the world, you know, to pull off the revolution, the world would be a better place. And, and look, we may not see Barabbas as anything more than kind of a first century foaming at the mouth rebel, but I think we have to relate to him in this sense. He is emblematic of where, wherever and whatever the thrones of our hearts take us. You know, for, for us, our hopes may not be in a Judean insurrectionist restoring Israel. You know, our, our ride or die kingdom's dreams might be career. You know, it might be our politics, our personal happiness, our people group, a million other things that sort of sit firmly and fiercely on the throne of our hearts that will not be challenged, that we pour our hopes into, thinking if only this will be attained, then the kingdom will have been ushered in. Our hearts are thrones. And Jesus, because he's king, the actual, real, true, living king, will not take a seat next to that throne. He must sit upon it. We may not relate to yelling out crucify to whatever may threaten our little kingdom, but I suspect we're familiar with what it means to have a restless heart, to have a raging heart, to have a heart racked 
with guilt. You see, your and my heart not only is a throne, but it's a throne made for Jesus to sit upon. Augustine famously prayed, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That restlessness you contend with, that restlessness I contend with, comes from the reality that our hearts are always being contended for. There's always a little insurrection going on by puppet kings and pretend kingdoms always making demands of us, making us crazy, manipulating us, even making us murderous in the hopes that we'll finally get a hold of what we think we long for. But Jesus is a totally different kind of king. And his is an utterly different kind of kingdom, unlike every other king and kingdom, which demand that we prove our worth in giving our life for them, which, which has us screaming and scrambling. King Jesus knows who he is, and he doesn't come with demands for our life, but comes to meet the demands that would give us life, giving his innocent life for our guilty life. He doesn't play the game of, the, of my enemy the enemy of my enemy is my friend. He makes enemies friends. Like Barabbas, we should have been bound, condemned, and sent to the cross, which we would have deserved, but Jesus steps in and takes it all. We've, we've all bent the knee, and it's costing us. But the question to us this morning is, will we bend the knee to the King of Grace, who willingly, freely, fully, graciously, and gladly bears the cost for us in himself. He knows where he's going. He knows why he's going there. The love of Christ does what we could never do for ourselves. It saves us from our sin, from the deserved condemnation that should have been ours, and it frees us from a furious and failing determination to make our own little kingdom apart from him. Let's go to his table now. Please pray with me. Lord, how convenient and maybe even a little bit comforting it would be to imagine ourselves as different from that crowd, as, as those who, you know, would have been the one voice that would have said, would not have said crucify him. Uh, but Lord, uh, when we take a look at the cost of our redemption, Jesus, at why you came to save sinners, we understand our complicity uh, in these things. And Lord, that um, highlights the greatness of your redemption, that that did not deter you from your mission, that did not diminish your love for sinners, but instead drove your determination to the cross that, that, that the guilt that should have been ours would fall upon you, that the condemnation that should have fallen upon us would fall upon you. Lord, that the life that, that, that we are called to live would be perfectly fulfilled and, and lived by you so that you as our substitute, as our propitiation for sin, Lord, as the one who stands in our place would effect for us a full salvation, a full redemption, so that the throne of our hearts would no longer be, you know, contended for, but Lord, that you would sit upon them. And that that would be for us rest and refreshment and joy and peace and grace. 
Lord, um, we pray that this good news of our Savior would sink very deep. Lord, that even if we've known it for a long time, that we would contemplate these things as we come to this, your table, um, and that we would relish these things. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You have not left us alone. You have not left us subject to the tyrannies of this fallen world and all its pretend and puppet kings and rulers and kingdoms. But you have instead redeemed us for yourself. And this, this table is such a great picture that, that, that having attained it, Lord, you feed us. You welcome us to your table as sons and daughters of the living God. What a gift. So, Lord, would we come eating and drinking deeply, relishing this great salvation, um, remembering uh, the greatness of your saving work, relishing its present power and potency in our lives, and, Lord, looking forward to the time when we will be with you, where sin will be no more, uh, where we will feast upon the richest affair in the presence of our Savior. Lord, um, and thank you that we're together. You haven't left us alone. Uh, we're here together, and one of us is you. So minister to us as we come to this table in Jesus' name. Amen.